0: Well, good morning. Thank you, Holly. How's everybody doing? Good. Well, I tell you, a couple weeks ago, I was traveling for work with a good friend and coworker, and we were out of town, and after our meetings were over for the week, we realized that we were going to be able to catch an early flight home. <laughs> well, if you travel much for work, and thank goodness I don't have to, but if you travel much for work or really travel at all, you know that the phrase or words... Catch a flight early are almost completely synonymous with you're going to regret this. Regardless, we went ahead and and called Delta on our way back to the hotel, and sure enough, there was a flight at six o'clock that would get us home later that evening. And so we booked the flight. We rushed back to the hotel. We grabbed our things. We packed. We made it back to the airport. We made it through security without any problems. We made it to the gate without any problems. We grabbed a bite to eat on our way. But then we got on the plane, and I put the, you know, my earbuds in and was kind of zoning out, and after about 30 minutes, I realized we were still on the runway, and we hadn't taken off yet. Now, the problem was is that our layover in Atlanta was only 40 minutes, and flying into one of the world's most busy airports, I was kind of venturing to guess that 10 minutes was not going to give us enough time to make our connecting flight. So in that moment, right there in the seat, I just started to pray. I started to pray that God would do the impossible, that he would move the immovable. And by immovable, I specifically mean the nice middle-aged woman in 26B that when we landed in Atlanta, I thought that it would be the opportune time to fish through her purse for only God knows what. (laughs) Regardless, fast forward an hour and a half, we make it to Atlanta at the exact time that we're supposed to be catching our departing flight to Peoria. We finally deplane, and we start sprinting from Terminal B to Terminal D. And when we finally get to Terminal D, we get to our gate, and there is no one there. The gate agent's gone, and the door is locked. The giant gray security door that lets you out onto the jetway is completely locked. And so, I do what only any rational man would do. I went up to the door and I started to pound on it with a closed fist. You see, there's one thing, there's lots of things that are true about me, but one of the things that's true about me is you simply do not get between me and my wife. You don't get between me and my family. If you do, you will experience the full blunt force of my will. And so I started beating on the door, and in that moment, as I was beating on the door, I was interrupted by a voice of authority from the other end of the terminal that said, once the door is locked and closed, you cannot enter. Well, I don't give up easily, but what this voice of authority didn't know is about the conversation I had been having with God for the past couple hours about how I needed to get home. Like I said, you don't get behind, be, between myself and my wife, and you certainly don't get between me and my wife after I've been gone on a travel trip for a week. <laughs> my family was already aware of my, early, my, my potential early arrival, and so not getting there would be a huge disappointment. But I stopped beating on the door because the alternative was an interview with the TSA agent in a windowless room, and I wasn't about that. So, dejected, Derek and I made our way back to customer service, and as we're walking down the terminal, one of our co-patrons comes running the opposite direction, and she's screaming, go back to the gate, they're going to let us on. So, we turn around, and we start running back to the gate, and we get to the gate, and sure enough, they are. The door is open, and it turns out that the pilot, not randomly, I might add, decided that he needed more fuel. Why? He didn't have enough fuel to begin with. I don't really care to know. (laughs) But he had decided that he needed more fuel. And so in that window of opportunity, we were able to board the plane. You see, the door had been closed, but now it was open. So through no effort of my own, you know, I, I had gone to the door and I was sweating and I'll be honest with you, and if you've traveled much with me, you know this. I don't necessarily like to travel. I was biting back words of frustration, irritation. The nice gentleman at the gate had nothing to do, and if I had unleashed that frustration on him, he would have just been an innocent bystander. But through no effort of my own, the door was open. We're in a series about doors, and I love this series. We've had a few weeks now. I love this series because... Doors is kind of an ambiguous title, right? I mean, there's doors. We could go lots of different directions with this. And and the preachers and those that have taught so far have. They've gone a lot of different directions. And it's cool because there's metaphorical doors, and there's real doors, and there's doors about analogies. And so there's lots of different ways that we can go about that. But speaking about real doors for a moment, does anybody have a door in their life that's difficult to open? A real door an office door, you know that door you go to the office and every time you go to push on it, you're supposed to pull. Or maybe, maybe it's a front door where every time you try to leave, you think you're supposed to push down, but really you're supposed to pull up. <laughs> or maybe it's a door like in my house, it's a laundry room door. Me and this door are at a standoff right now. The standoff is how long can I not fix it before it stops being a total pain in the rear to open. It's one of those doors that it jams, and so to close it, you kind of have to slam it shut, and to open it, you kind of have to give it that extra tug to open. I am, I mean, I've got awesome resolve, so we'll just see who breaks first. But there's these doors in our life. There's front doors, and back doors, and side doors, and garage doors, and cellar doors, and steel doors, and glass doors. There's all these actual doors in our life. And if you have one of these pane-in-the-rear doors to open, that door has a name. It's not the name you think you want to call it. <laughs> the name of a door that is difficult to open is called a Norman door. A Norman door is a door where the design tells you to do the opposite of what you're actually supposed to do. And a Norman door is called a Norman door because of? Don Norman. Don Norman wrote the book called The Design of Everyday Things. And Don was, is, is and was a very accomplished person. Just to give you an idea of how accomplished he is, Don is a professor of psychology. He's a professor of cognitive science. He's a professor of computer science. And he works for a small little company called Apple, where he's the VP of design architecture. In case you didn't check that out, that's three professors. The things that you've come to love about Apple come from Don. The intuitive design, the simplicity, the elegantness of it. Don is the one who came up with all that. So you get an iPhone these days, it doesn't even come with a manual. It's just, here's a phone, figure it out. And somehow, you know how to. I have a a one-and-a-half-year-old son. He can't even speak, but he can find YouTube. He can search for what he wants. He can scroll past what he doesn't want, and he can pause it when he's tired of watching it. (laughs) So Don, the story goes, in in the late 80s, went on a trip to Europe. And when he was on this trip to Europe, he got incredibly frustrated with how hard it was to interact with everyday things. Light switches, and faucets, and specifically doors. And so Don, from this trip, decided to write a book about design. The design of everyday things. Don says, if a door has to have a sign on it to tell you how to use it, that's a bad design. You shouldn't have to read push or pull. The door, as you approach it, should by its very nature tell you how you're supposed to use it. You've seen one of the most classically designed doors is one where there's nothing on the door except for a metal plate, whether it's horizontal or vertically. There's only one thing you can do, push. And so that's a well-designed door. On the other hand, you might have one of these doors at work where every time you go to it, you go to pull and it slams in your face or vice you know, or or vice versa, push when you should pull. And so as I'm reading through what Don's talking about in the design of everyday things, Don comes up with a concept, and this is what blows my mind. It blows my mind that this concept took until the 80s to actually be identified and coined. And the idea is, the concept is, that design should have a human-centric design. As we use things, they should be, as we interact with them as humans, they should be designed around our human nature. Human-centric design is the idea that something should be designed in a way that is intuitive, discoverable, and built with the specific intention of the human interaction in mind. A good door, and I hope you're seeing where I'm getting ready to go with this. A good door is a door that is rightly designed and should be intuitive. It should be by its very existence and give the human approaching it clear and immediate feedback. As the person approaches it, that automatic feedback should be met with no resistance. You should be invited to the door and walk through it in such a simple way that you almost don't even recognize how easy it is. You should understand the door at a deeply cognitive level without it being at the forefront of your mind. What I'm trying to say here, and I hope that you're picking up, is Don wrote about a door. The best doors invite you to enter through them and pass without resistance. Now, I'm not sure if Don knows this or not, but it took Don. 368 pages, stay with me, 368 pages, wonderful pages, to write about the best door. It took Jesus four words. Don is an amazing designer, a critical thinker, and his writings have changed the way that we interact with everyday things. Everything that we use, the best designed things, come from the teachings of Don Norman. Yet, even with all of that, he simply cannot compare to the four words that Jesus uttered in John 10.9. To give you a little bit of a background, Jesus had just got done healing a blind beggar. On the Sabbath, I might add. And the Pharisees are looking for a way to kill Jesus. They're foaming at the mouth. They are looking for any possible way to throw him under the figurative bus. And they think they've got him. They think that they found a way. Jesus has healed somebody on the Sabbath, and this is a big no-no. And so, also to have a little bit of background, the Jews at the time understand that the Pharisees say one thing but do another. They understand that the Pharisees, while they're leaders, are not really their leaders. They say one thing and they do another. And so the Jews are primed for this contrast that Jesus is about to explain. So in John 10, Jesus goes on to give seven I am truths. And what this is, this is a figurative line in the sand. Jesus is saying, all you all, you know what the pharisees are like you know what they do you know that they say one thing and do another and jesus says i'm going to tell you how i'm different i'm going to draw a figurative figurative line in the sand and so he does and so he goes on in john 10 to give seven i am statements and they are i am the bread of life i am the light of the world i am the good shepherd I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine, and I am the door. John 10, 9. I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Don Norman gives us what a good door looks like. God has given us what the door looks like. His most perfect, most holy, most righteous, most loving, most safe door. Don gave us a good door. God gave us the best door. When I was reading the book, The Design of Everyday Things, just to give you a little bit of background, I know I've mentioned this before. When I read things or see things or hear things, I always try to contrast them and filter them through the God that I know the truth of what I know and so as I'm reading this book and researching on Don he's talking about doors and good doors and perfect doors I'm like hey Don I know where you're going with this I know a good door I know a perfect door but then he talks about a human-centric design and I'm like now I'm tracking with you Don I love to read about science. My wife calls it mucking around on the internet, but the reality is, is I'm, truly, the reality is, is I love, I just have a curiosity. I didn't learn anything in school, by the way. And You're probably the same way. I didn't learn anything in school. I learned to read in school and count to like 10, which is basically what I use every day in my job. Everything that I've learned of any value has been since I left school, and I think that that's probably true for you. We live in a day and age where you can research anything and find out about anything at the click of a mouse. And so I spend much of my time in meetings not paying attention, but learning about things that are of curiosity to me. Science and pseudosciences, medicine, architecture, all these things that are of interest to me, I get geeked out on them. And I, I click on a YouTube link, and the next thing you know, I'm like in this rabbit hole. I'm like, how did I end up here? <laughs> but it's, it's cool stuff. It's cool stuff. And so as I'm kind of reading this book about Norman, and mind you, I don't know if Don Norman knows Jesus. It's irrelevant. The fact is, is that his book is full of truth, and he doesn't even know it probably. And so as I'm reading through this book, I'm, I'm filtering through what I know to be true in my life, and my family's life, that there is a door and it's the best door and it's the only door and it's designed with me in mind. And so I'm reading through and I'm going, this is so cool. But in our culture, guys, this has become increasingly prevalent. In our culture, we're constantly being asked or forced to choose between God and science. Which one do you believe in? Do you believe in God or do you believe in science? And when the question comes to me, I go, yeah, yeah, I believe in both. The sciences, the mathematics, medicine, architecture, all these things are designed to point back to God. God created them for us so that we can get a small microcosm of his glory through them. Let me ask you this. We had daylight savings time this morning. What yeah, yeah. What's what's more impressive? The guy like me that can set the watch or the guy that built the watch? That architected the watch. That put all the little components together. Hear me, I love science. I have immense respect for scientists and doctors and architects, and mathematicians, and quantum physicists, and all of them. But we sit over here sometimes kind of looking like, oh, we figured this little thing out about the galaxy. And God's like, now you have the smallest comprehension of how great I am. And so we have all these things and understand, and I believe this fully to the bottom of my heart. I believe this. One day, All of these things, all these little building blocks that we research and we pour time and resources into, all of these things here are going to point back to God, every single one of them. And we're going to come to a day and age where we look and we go, man, all of these things, they point to God, every single one of them. Everything that was said in the Bible is true. And hear me here, the Bible doesn't tell us everything. The Bible doesn't spin 40 billion research papers telling us about every little detail about what happened. But what it does give us is it gives us the cliff notes. We're supposed to fill in the blanks. And just think, just because you figured out one little thing here doesn't mean you're the greatest. It means that you have understood at the most small level how great God is. And when we do figure those things out, if God was sarcastic, he would be over here like, golf clap. Good job. <laughs> Golf clap. You understand a small part of who God is. And so God uses math and science, architecture, music, art, relationships, and people to point back to him. And so as I'm reading the book and understanding what Norman's putting down, the whole time I'm going, I understand, Don. I understand what you're saying, and you probably didn't even mean to say it. Jesus says, come through me. I am the door. I am the only gate. Come through me. I will not make you push when you should pull. I will not make the handle difficult to turn. And when you choose to come through me, I will not resist you. Come through me. Oh, and by the way, it will be effortless for you because I did all the heavy lifting for you on the cross. It should be no shock to us that an all-loving, all-merciful, all-faithful God has given us a door that is human-centric, a door that by its very design is with us in mind, so much so that God took on our own form so that we could better identify with the perfect door. You might be sitting here thinking, that's great, Kip. That's a cool story. But I don't even know if God exists. I haven't thought about it. I don't know if God exists. Maybe I don't want to think about it. And I certainly haven't given much thought to Jesus. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. First, we have to deal with the God issue. What is the God issue? The God issue is you have to answer the question. Everybody that's here today, everybody that hears my voice, everybody in the entire world from the beginning of time to the end of time has to answer this question. Do you believe in God? Rather, you answer the question Actively, or rather you answer it passively, is up to you. A passive answer is what we call an agnostic. An agnostic is somebody that says, "I simply am just not going to answer the question. I'm just not going to engage in the conversation. I just don't want to think about it." And some people actively answer it that way, and some people passively answer it that way. Passively answering the God question is us being too busy? Thinking we're too busy, having too much on our plate, having too much going on top of mind that we don't take the time to say, I need to address this question. And so all of us have to answer it, whether you want to or not, whether you answer it actively or passively, you have to answer the question. Do you believe in God? The thing is, is that lots of people say they believe in God. If you talk to Americans, especially, many of them say that they believe in God. Lots of people say God in a reverent way. There's lots of people who say God in a non-reverent way. But lots of people say God all the time. I believe in God. Because you can say things like, I believe in God, without any real commitment. Let me tell you this. Every other religion other than Christianity, says you have to go find God, and then when you do find him, you have to present yourself in a way that's perfect and holy enough that he accepts you. Every other religion, that's what they teach. You don't believe me? Go research it yourself. I did. I knew Jesus when I was seven years old, and when I got to college, like many of you, I thought, man, I'm way too smart to just accept this for what face value. And so I spent time researching it. Read a number of books about it, both secular, non-secular, Christian-centered, non-Christian-centered. And every religion, that's what they focus on. You have to find God, and then when you find him, you need to present yourself in a way that's acceptable to him. Christianity is different. Christianity says, I am going to come find you, and when I do, I am going to pursue you until you actively make the decision to reject me. So if you've answered the God question and you say, okay, I've looked at all the evidence. I've looked at all the things seen and unseen, science and medicine and all these things. I've listened to preachers preach and I believe that there's a God, but I'm just not quite sure how to get to him. This is the Jesus issue. The Jesus issue is this. You have to be able to, to walk through Jesus, the perfect door. Jesus came for us. He, God sent Jesus for us. He sent the door. Jesus paid the price for us. And you have to reconcile this in your, in your mind. And once you've answered the God issue, you have to answer the Jesus question, and you have to be able to say, I either actively choose him or I actively reject him. There is no passive version here. One thing... And I know this to be true because it was true for me and I believe it's true for you. I've witnessed this and I've observed this. Once you have become a believer, once you call yourself a Christian and you're following Jesus, at that point, we're running a race, guys. We're trying to be better every day. And Christianity is not competitive. It's not about being better than Isaac or better than Phil. But the reality is, is that you should be getting better in your faith every day. We've talked about this before. You should be pursuing Jesus in a way that today you're better at it than the day before. And one of the things that I know to be true, and I know this because it was true in my life, is there's a litmus test to just figure out where you stand with Jesus. Do you want to know what the test is? The test is this. Can you say the name jesus out loud sounds like a simple test right i'm not talking about in here this is a safe place everybody talks about jesus in church i'm not talking about at home either guys praying with your family at dinner man that's a safe place too nobody's gonna mock you nobody's gonna think less of you nobody's gonna think you're crazy because you say the name jesus Can you say the name Jesus out loud out there in the world that mocked him and beat him and crucified him? Can you say the name Jesus in front of coworkers that you know don't believe in him, that use his name in vain, Can you say the name Jesus with your friends and at school and in the places that are not safe? Can you say the name Jesus and do it without fumbling over yourself and choking back your tongue? Jesus paid an unbelievable price for us. He went to a cross. He took a brutal death, a a wrong conviction. And the least that we can do is say his name with pride. So I would challenge you. In a moment, we're going to pray. And I want you to be thinking about, this is not, again, a condemnation because I was there. There was a time where I could say God left and right. And I, I truly believed in God and I truly had a personal relationship with Jesus, but I hadn't reached the place where I had come to terms with what He had done for me. And when you come to that place, when you come to that place, you will freely say the name Jesus. And you will do it in a way that you know even the person you're talking to may be thinking, man, he's crazy. He is crazy. But when you say the name Jesus, there's something powerful about the name Jesus. There is something that will make People squirm in their chairs if they don't know him. And there's a reason for that, because the name Jesus is unlike any other name that has been or ever will be. So in a moment, we're going to pray. And I want to think about the door. The door that is human-centric. The door that is so human-centric that God sent his only son to take on our own Imperfect, sinful form. Although Jesus was sinless, he took on our form so that we could more closely identify with our Savior. A door that's so human centric that when we look at it, it looks just like us. I encourage you to be thinking about this week and the weeks to come who are the people in your life that need to hear the name Jesus? Who are the people? There is somebody in everybody's life that you meet with or work with or go to school with that needs to hear about Jesus from somebody like you that can say it boldly and proudly because of what he's done in your life. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for sending your son for us. Lord, we thank you that you thought enough of us to send your son, your son Jesus, the perfect and rightly designed door for us to walk through effortlessly, without resistance. Simply you say, all we must do is call upon your name and walk through you. You are the gate, Lord. With arms spread wide open, you invite us into your kingdom. Lord, you took a brutal death for us, and we thank you for what you've done for us, Lord. We never want to forget, and we want to go from this place, not just today, but every day, able to say your name, not in our own pride, but in because of what you've done for us through your Son. Jesus, we thank you for these things, Lord. We pray that you would bless this church, that you would bless this people, Lord, that we would go from this place loving you more intently and more closely we have from ever before. In your name we pray. Amen.